our Bibles to First Peter chapter four. First Peter chapter four, verses one through six. We'll read this passage, and then we'll pray together. First Peter chapter four, verses one through six. Um, I'd request that you uh, uh, stay with me. We won't be flipping around that much, but there are a few passages that we'll be referring to. I truly admire Joseph for his slides. Um, I aspire to do slides that nice. and uh, But I, I, alas, I don't have those today. So um, we'll, we'll go old school and we'll stay in our Bibles a bit. But First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Since... Therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Our Father, I pray that you would meet my need, our needs today in your word. I confess that I am a man of um, emotion and passions that can overtake, that can enslave. I pray that the truth of this passage would speak first to me and then to your people gathered here. May we see clearly through your eyes the needs that we have in our lives. May we understand the beauty of suffering. May we each day take another step to seeing our life, our lives as just a, um, a segment of eternity. And may we see what we have and what we do in an eternal viewpoint. Thank you, Father, for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the opening days of World War II in Great Britain, great events were taking place. Memorable events. Countries fell under the inexorable scourge of Nazi Germany as Hitler was rising to power and sought to subjugate the continent. Britain declared war on Germany in September 1939 as part of in support of their alliance partners, Poland and France. And the Battle of France began in May of 1940. Winston Churchill was named Prime Minister of Great Britain, replacing Neville Chamberlain. We all may have heard of Britain, uh, Churchill's famous speech where he said, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. It was a good speech, his most famous speech, perhaps. And he gave many. But when he was first appointed in that very second week of his service as prime minister, the Battle of France had been going on for about three weeks. Churchill made his initial address through the BBC 
to the nation on Sunday, May 19, 1940. The Battle of France was going badly. France would fall in another three weeks, and Germany would bring the battle to Britain. Churchill knew this, and he spoke plainly to the people of his country on the stiff odds against them, of the advance of the Germans, and the long and arduous task that lay before the joint armies of Britain and France. At the end of his speech, he said, We have, we, speaking of Britain and France, we have differed and quarreled in the past, but now one bond unites us all to wage war until victory is won, to never surrender ourselves to servitude and shame, whatever the cost and the agony may be. This is one of the most awe-striking periods in the long history of France and Britain. It is also beyond doubt the most sublime. Side by side, the British and French peoples have advanced to rescue not only Europe, but mankind from the foulest and most soul-destroying tyranny which has ever darkened and stained the pages of history. Upon all the long night of barbarism will descend, unbroken even by a star of hope, unless we conquer, as conquer we must, as conquer we shall. Today is Trinity Sunday, Churchill said. Centuries ago, words were written to be a call and a spur to the faithful servants of truth and justice. And hear this. Churchill says, Arm yourselves, and be ye men of valor, and be in readiness for the conflict, for it is better for us to perish in battle than to look upon the outrage of our nation and our altar. As the will of God is in heaven, even so let it be. Arm yourselves, and be men of valor. Arm yourselves and be in readiness for the conflict of war, he is saying. Arm yourselves for the struggle that lies ahead. In our passage today, this is also our call. To arm ourselves for the great conflict that we have. And what is that great conflict that we face in our lives each day? The great conflict we have with sin. Let's examine this passage of Scripture The first two words of this chapter say, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. So we would be well suited to look back to the previous chapter. Remember the words of the previous chapter. Last week, Joseph took us to the end of chapter 3. And we remember that we read of the glorious triumphant outcome of Christ's suffering, that Christ brought us to God through his suffering. We saw also that we, all of us, are following Christ in suffering, that we All of us who believe in Christ can have confidence that we will pass safely through death because Christ passed safely through death. Christ gained his greatest triumph at the time of his greatest suffering. Christ gained his greatest triumph at the time of his greatest suffering. Christ triumphed over sin. Christ triumphed over death. Christ triumphed over hell. So what shall we do, believers? What is Peter calling us to do? How then shall we follow upon this teaching that God's, that Christ's greatest triumph came upon, upon the time of his greatest suffering? Peter says to arm yourself. So that's the first point. Armor. That we take on Christ's attitude towards suffering and sin. The title of the message is Arm Yourself With Suffering. Not arm yourself for suffering in preparation for suffering, but arm yourself with suffering since therefore verse 1 Christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking God's word is saying that because Christ suffered in the flesh because of that truth and that outcome of Christ's suffering 
we should arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. We should strap on the armor. We should take up the weapons. We should prepare for conflict. And that armor that we are taking on is the attitude, the mindset that Christ had. The very non-conventional wisdom mindset that Christ had. That suffering is the path to triumph. That suffering was the way that Christ carried us to God. And it says in the latter part of verse 1 that the conflict we have is with sin. If you look at that last phrase, for whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So this verse is talking about believers, those who are following after Christ. Now, this does not mean that believers who suffer will never sin again. This does not mean that because Christ suffered, if I suffer, I will stop sinning. There are a couple of key meanings, though, that, that I want to highlight. And in them, in both of these truths, are, are some comfort. Number one, death for the believer is not something to be feared. We sing of this. We talk about this. But, but there's a meaning there. Death releases us from that battle that we have with sin. Have you ever, in your days on this earth, have you ever looked at a day and said, I long for the day where I don't struggle with these lusts, with this anger, where I no longer have broken relationships caused by sin. Sin for in my own life, sin in another's life. Sin is a scourge that has separated us from God. Sin is what makes our lives so difficult. The ultimate suffering that we can encounter is death, and it frees us from sin. So for the Christian, death is a release from that struggle. We fight against sin. We are called to mortify our bodies from sin. In this book itself, Peter in chapter 2, 24 said that we should die to sin and live to righteousness because Jesus suffered and bore our sins in his body on the tree. So the first meaning in this passage of suffering in the flesh and ceasing from sin is that the ultimate suffering releases us from sin. But the preeminent meaning in this verse is one of comparison. What does it mean to cease from sin if you are to suffer in the flesh? To cease from sin means that the believer is so committed to suffering for doing good, suffering for doing the right thing, that that believer is overtly and explicitly stating, not just with words but with actions, that believer is saying, sin is not a consideration for me. I choose suffering for the right thing. I am giving up on sin in order to suffer. Suffering for doing God's will is paramount, and I am making a clean break from sin. And that is embodied in the attitude that Christ had. This is a difficult thing because these, these words don't fall upon themselves the way we might express it. But as believers, we are to hold Christ and suffering for his name so precious that we render sin in our lives useless as having no effect on us as effectively ceasing from sin. We break the enslaving power of sin in order to suffer. We choose to suffer. As we've been taught in this book, we know that we are called to suffer. We know that we will suffer and that our suffering glorifies God. Choosing that suffering, therefore, is tied to choosing not to sin. 
as Christ suffered and was triumphant. Remember this message from last week. As Christ suffered and was triumphant, we too who suffer will be triumphant over sin. Armed with this set of attitudinal priorities, the rest of our earthly time, look in verse 2, living out our days on the earth, walking around in these suits of flesh, we have purpose. Before becoming believers, we lived life focused solely on satisfying our own human passions. Look in verse 2, where, where Peter refers to the, the passions, um, the, rest, the, the human passions that we followed. I, I referenced Titus 3.3 3 as well. Titus 3.3, 3, I'll read it to you. You can jot it down. For we ourselves were once foolish. Again, speaking of the past before Christ. We were disobedient. We were led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Passions and emotions do enslave. And this is taught throughout Scripture. The French musician and mathematician and philosopher uh, Rene Descartes in the early 1600s came up with the Cartesian coordinate system for math people. He also had a lesser-known younger brother, the horse. So he's the, the cart before the horse. Um, sorry, that joke has been percolating for about 20 years since I... Um, he wrote a book. He wrote many books, but he wrote a book called The Passions of the Soul. I don't know if he was a Christian. I mean, his, his philosophy was definitely embraced by many in that time. Um, but I found one comment to be very apropos. Descartes wrote in the early 1600s, The weakest souls of all are those whose will is not determined to follow such judgments, but constantly instead allows itself to be carried away by present passions. These passions, being often opposed to one another, pull the will first one way and then another, thus making it battle against itself, and so putting the soul in its most deplorable state possible. Passions jostle the will in opposite ways, and since the will obeys first the one and then the other, it is continually opposed to itself, and so it renders the soul enslaved and miserable. Even a philosopher could echo what Titus was saying, what we see taught in Scripture, that our human passions, if we allow those to govern us, it is an enslaving and a truly miserable life. Paul, uh, Peter strengthens his call to us to arm ourselves by saying, if we arm ourselves with the attitude that suffering is our primary weapon and shield against sin, we will live our lives for the rest of the time in the flesh for the will of God and not any longer following that enslaving, miserable passion that leads us to sin. Peter is contrasting a life of enslavement with one of purpose that lives to God's will. When we read this verse, we talk about arming ourselves with the same way of thinking that Christ had. Does your mind go also to Philippians chapter 2, another reference to having the mind of Christ? What was his mind in that passage? Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, might I substitute passions, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which was yours in Christ Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The mind of Christ leads to ultimate triumph and exaltation. That passage in Philippians 2 continues, Therefore God has highly exalted him. Therefore, because of Christ's mind, because of his attitude to subjecting his own interest to God's, putting first the interest of others, let that mind of Christ also be in us. And God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name. When we take on the attitude of Christ, we suborn our own passions, our agendas, to that of God and His will. We do so by arming ourselves with suffering against sin. After this call to arm ourselves, Peter goes on in verses 3 and 4 to talk about one particular type of suffering which Christians may encounter. While the Christian life and our pursuit of sanctification does include a very clear call to forget those things which are behind. I mean, I'm thinking of Philippians 3, 13 through 14. Um, many many uh, athletic ministries have this verse uh, in, in their teaching. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Yes, we are to lay aside the things which slow us down. We are to forget the things which lie behind. But Peter does reference our memory of things past in this passage in 1 Peter as a means to understanding this non-conventional suffering is greater than sin motif that he established in verses 1 and 2. If we consider his original audience, these are scattered Christians. These are people within the Roman Empire scattered within that culture, doing things which were countercultural, way different than uh, even, even our lives here in Hillsboro. If we behave in Christian fashion, if we behave as Christians, I dare say few of us would encounter the persecution that they had in First Peter. We'll go into that in a moment because I do believe there is suffering. It just is a different form. But Peter talks about, in verse number 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And then he lists what the Gentiles want to do. That's a very interesting phrase. For the time that is past suffices. Peter is saying if you lived a long time in the past doing sinful acts, that was enough. We, you set that aside. Peter is saying if you spent a short time sinning as the Gentiles, as the unbelievers do, that was enough too. He's just saying, we're done with that as believers. Now, Peter's list of sins, these are not meant as a comprehensive list of really bad things that Christians should not do. It was an example of conventional things. I mean, to us, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, sensuality, passion, some of those you know, characterize our society. Some of those are more Roman Empire. But we're not to look at that and say, yep, I'm, I'm good on at least half of those. I haven't participated in that. 
if we consider that these were commonplace practices that Christians in, their, in that time in the Roman Empire, in their former lives, they may have participated in. One historian says that these practices, as unusual as we might think them, may have been somewhat standard in family religious celebration days. And with respect to these activities, Peter is saying, you're not participating in that anymore. And slander and suffering is going to come to you. Because the people that you used to party with, the people that you used to hang with, it's not just a matter of participating, but they're like, why are you not joining me in the same flood of debauchery? That, that, that phrase is interesting, joining, diving into the same flood of debauchery. Um, I was recently watching a food documentary, as I, I do too often, and it, they were talking about how hogs are raised you know, to provide pork for the world. Uh, there are you know, farms in the U.S. that have cleaned up literally speaking, you know, the way they do things, and we, we benefit from that. Um, but in, in China, there's you know, a huge population. Meat is very scarce. Um, they're starting to um, raise livestock in, in mass ways, the way we do in the, the U.S. And, but without the regulatory influences, sometimes you know, coming out of a hog farm or a chicken farm, there's just like a pipe that empties out into the river carrying all the waste and that's when i read this i was thinking that's like a flood of debauchery where the gentiles i as a gentile used to plunge into that that was my swimming hole where i would just dive into that cesspool and that's peter and now i understand what peter's like whatever time you spent swimming in that cesspool of waste coming out of a of barn that was enough and when you look at it that way it, yes, whatever time I spent living that way, what, doing what the Gentiles wanted to do, by living, joining them in that same flood of debauchery, that was enough. But what are, the, what are my former friends, what are the former relatives going to do? They will be surprised. They will malign when Christians do not join in those activities. If we consider this list in verse 3, some of the isn't that unusual if you think about it living in sensuality this is normal for us isn't it yeah i'm getting to that age where i can say i remember when i was a kid you know um the things that were seen in the grocery store on the magazine rack when i was a child versus what is there now is different it's become mainstreamed we've become numbed to it you know, at the at the very best, it's an increase in sensuality. And we have that. We have even believers, perhaps like the the mythical frog in the pot of water. We've become deadened to that, and I don't believe that glorifies God. Living in sensuality, living in passions. Uh, you know, I've already talked about that because Peter referenced it in verse two that sensual passions and emotions can enslave a person. Peter talks about that in his next book. Second Peter 2:18 and 19. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Second Peter 2:18 and 19. Living in idolatry. 
all too often we can think of idolatry as the stereotypical idol that is carved in, on a mantle. That was not the dramatic sound I was waiting for. Um, our careers can be idols. It's not a carved, graven image. Our families can be idols. If we find fulfillment in anything, our true fulfillment, if we desire to pursue fulfillment in something that is not God, that becomes an idol. Our lifestyle, our pursuit of fitness, our pursuit of leisure, our, even our pursuit of sports can become an idol. These things in verses 3 and 4 are to characterize our past, not our futures in Christ. And whatever time we have spent diving into this wasteful life, it is enough, says Peter. Suffering can take the form of a former running mate saying, you know, do you think you're better than me because you don't do this anymore? I, I, I was thinking of uh, childhood. If, if you're going to get involved in mischief, let's say, uh, um, I, sadly, I don't recall any mischief that I might have gotten involved in as a child. But, so let's speak theoretically. If you're going to get involved in, in mischief, usually one would drag a sibling with him or like, get a friend, like, let's go do this. Rarely does it like, now you stay out of it, I'm going to go do it alone. That way if I get punished, I'll be alone. We take someone with us. I, I don't know when we're taught that. It must just be our sinful nature to, to want people to join with us. And so if adults, if you used to get drunk with a group of friends, you play softball, you go get drunk, you, um, you live in a sensual lifestyle. When you stop doing that, when God transforms your heart, and you stop doing that, people notice. And they may malign. It, it makes no sense that they would say, you know, whoa, you're not going to be destructive anymore. They would say, what, you think you're better than me? No, I, I didn't say that. God transformed my life. But well, by not doing what I'm doing, by not joining me in this debauchery, I must slander you is the natural response. We can even suffer by choosing not to pursue worldly opportunities for success that gain wealth and prestige. Have you spoken to anyone, again, I'm more speaking to adults, people you work with, and you're given an opportunity to pursue something that's going to take more time away from your family perhaps, more time away from your ministry to other believers, to the unsaved ministry in the church. It's going to be very lucrative, but it's something that you turn down. And when someone says, why did you turn down that promotion? Why did you turn down that transfer? I mean, it would have doubled your salary. And so if you were to tell them, it's because I, that's not my priority here. Some might admire you for your belief. More often, people would say, you're an idiot. You're a fool. They would malign you. How might even your family, extended family, in-laws, even see choices that are made? If, if you happen to have an extended family that are not believers and they see you living in humble, more modest surroundings, not pursuing financial success as the world sees it, security as the world sees it, you will get maligned. You, you will receive slander. 
something for adults and young people, being social outcasts, being disconnected from what is the latest information possible, the latest movie, the latest book, um, choosing to be left out of what is in our culture a genuine pursuit of sensuality, choosing to be left out of entertainment, having a filter on that. I'm not talking about a computer filter, but a filter, a spirit filter that says, I choose not to partake in that. Even if I'm going to be around my friends, they're going to talk about something and I'm going to say, I have no idea what you're saying. You know, I'm just going to follow along. Not judgmentally, but just to be left out because it's a pursuit of worldly lusts and flesh. That, is, that can also wreak suffering and, and slander. The suffering in the form of slander and persecution will come to those who choose not to sin, but instead choose to suffer for doing right and living their lives for the will of God. More common for us, perhaps, and I just offer this for our thought, is the more subtle interpretation of these verses 3 and 4. If you, as a Spirit-led follower of Christ, are choosing to no longer participate in truly legalistic religious practices, perhaps practices that your family tradition requires that you used to do on a regular basis, but that you see as antithetical to the Gospel, as teaching a false gospel, one that earns God's favor. Our families can be surprised at us when we do not join them in that, I'll use the same term, that flood of sin. Families can malign, and this too is suffering. This too affects relationships for doing right, for pursuing what the will of God is. So these verses are appropriate for us, even though you know, we're not in the Roman Empire. There are, there is still a, a target-rich environment, so to speak, here of things that we, the time we spent doing them is enough, and that by not participating in them anymore, we should expect unbelievers to malign. My third point and final point is account. God's judgment will settle all. And we've seen a common thread through these chapters in First Peter and this ongoing call to suffering. We've seen that God is sovereign. We've taken comfort in that, that God's view of our lives is eternal. And he says, don't revile. I'll handle it. Leave it to God, the righteous judge. We are to trust in him. And Peter completes this call to arms, his call that we should view suffering as precious and sin as useless. Peter completes this call to arms by giving us comfort in verses 5 and 6. Peter reminds us, and this is financial term, that all accounts will be settled before God. <clears throat> Verse 5, They will give to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit <clears throat> the way God does. Specifically speaking, those that malign you for not joining in their flood of debauchery, for not participating in the sinful lifestyle of your unsaved past, they will give an account. And that judgment will not be escaped after death. Accountability for actions during life, accountability after death, is a foreign concept to many. We preach it. 
we understand that God is eternal, that we, saved and unsaved, are going to live after a fashion forever. Even unsaved people are not going to die. They will spend the rest of eternity in hell. But the Christians in First Peter, if you put yourself in that mindset, in this, in this early church, this religion was not that old. They no doubt were confronted with the challenge that this is all there is. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. When you, know, you live, you die. There's nothing after that. And you Christians are crazy for not participating in these sins, which are awesome and pleasurable and fun. Why don't you do this? We're all going to die and it just ends. But the truth is that it doesn't end. While death is a release from the struggle with sin for the believer, God's judgment for sin, especially for those who malign his chosen people in their suffering, this passage says, it will not be diminished by death. God will judge the living and the dead. Settling up our accounts, if it, the example of that, if you have a group of people, sometimes we meet at Longbottom and we'll run a tab. We'll say, you know, the people that are coming to the meeting, um, put them on tab 32. We settle up before we leave. So far we haven't forgotten and been a bad testimony, walked out without paying. One of us goes and settles up and pays. We settle our accounts before we leave. And that same a paradigm, that description of God settling accounts is, is very powerful because God's accounting is eternal. The living and the dead will have their accounts settled by God. But even in that, I find comfort. The promises made to believers will be settled by God as well. The last time I spoke, I talked about the struggle at times of trusting God to judge those who cause my suffering. God does not promise that that account will be settled here to my satisfaction while I can see it and know about it and glory in his vengeance. I mean, even in those words, hopefully you can pick up the perverted sense of me using God to judge those that I want him to judge. No, God says, leave it, Tim. I've got it. And God tells us that same thing. I will settle the accounts. And we can trust God, the ultimate accountant. Nothing will pass his his eyes, his audit. The judgment is eternal, and he will judge the living and the dead. And even people that don't believe in God, they will not escape. The, the final verse in this passage can be troublesome. The gospel was preached even to those who are dead. What does this mean? It might be more clear to read it this way. The gospel was preached to those who were alive but now are dead. We don't believe that that people can be saved after they are dead. But this is saying, Peter is comforting the Christians by saying those dead Christians that moved on, they did not die in vain. They died. They were judged in the flesh like everyone else. All flesh dies. But they're having their accounts settled. and They live on in the Spirit the same way that their Savior and Judge does. They live on in the Spirit, as Jesus does. The Gospel is preached to those who are alive, but now are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, though they died, they are living in the Spirit the way God does. This is a comfort that transcends any misguided revenge scenario that we might have. We might be tempted to take comfort solely in the truth that God will wreak vengeance on His adversaries and my adversaries, those who have reviled and maligned and caused suffering, but it's a sweeter truth 
that God will settle accounts for His own glory, that God will comfort those who have suffered, that God will help us to see, to fully see the truth that in our suffering is our greatest triumph over sin. So in conclusion, let me encourage you and also call you to arms as Peter did. Suffering is a shield against sin. Choosing to suffer is innately a rejection of sin. We should expect persecution from those who we used to partner with in sin. We should, should do good, take that suffering, and convey them to Christ through our suffering, as the previous chapter talked about. We should not fear people's judgment of us because of the godly decisions that we might make. We should be comforted because God will judge the living and the dead. Death frees us from sin, but death also enables us to live eternally in the Spirit as God does. We live with an eye towards the one who judges us eternally, not those who just judge us here on the earth. And this is perhaps the most difficult conclusion, but it is okay. In fact, it is our calling to make choices that lead to suffering. It's glorious to make choices that lead to suffering. We should arm ourselves, therefore, against sin with Christ's attitude towards suffering. And just like Christ, who had His greatest triumph in the time of His greatest suffering, we also will find our greatest triumph in our suffering. Today we share at the table, and it's very appropriate that we remember Christ's greatest triumph. When He died on the cross, He was triumphant over sin, over death, over the punishment for our sin in that time of His greatest suffering. In coming to the table today, we share in His suffering. We share in His death, His resurrection, and His life. Here at Grace and Truth, we encourage those of you here who are followers of Christ, who are trusting solely in the work of Christ, as, as Joseph prayed. Not by any works of our own hands are we gaining righteousness, but solely in the work of Christ. What He did for us on the cross, He died for us. He took the penalty for our sins. He shed His blood to cleanse us from sin. These are not just words. It's not just a mantra. To truly believe this, to understand that, to search your heart, if you're not sure whether you're trusting in your own righteousness or Christ's righteousness. The table is a time of celebration and remembrance, but it is not something that we want to provide social peer pressure like if you don't partake of the table, if you're not sure of your understanding of the gospel, that we, you would partake you know, just, just willy-nilly or, or with, without thinking of it. It is very serious time, a, a, a commemoration, a remembrance of what Christ did for us on the cross. For the believer, it's a joyous celebration, a reverential celebration. For the unbeliever, it's not something to be taken lightly. So I encourage you to come, partake, remember, partake in Christ's suffering and remember what He did for us. If you're not sure of your salvation, if you have questions I just ran through the gospel very, very quickly in about five seconds. But this is the heart of what we want to be talking to people about. 
I would encourage you, you know, to find whoever you're comfortable speaking to. We'll make a time to, to meet, go in God's Word. And this extends to young and old. We, we would not even want our kids to act Christian if they don't truly trust in, in, in Christ's work on the cross for their salvation. It would be our heart's desire that all who hear the preaching of God's Word here in this church uh, would, would truly be resting in Christ's work on the cross. Our Father, sometimes the things that we read in Your Word are so countercultural. We We don't seek suffering. We seek comfort. We seek positive affirmation. We seek the the uh, approval of those around us. But we've seen in this book that suffering brings you glory. That suffering is how you work out your will in our lives. And we understand that suffering for doing right, whatever the cost, even to the ultimate sacrifice of death, brings you glory. We thank you for this encouragement today that in, within our suffering it's not just an exercise, but it does help us to overcome sin. And we pray that we would meditate upon this difficult truth. For your table now, we, we come and we ask that this would be a time where we are able to clear our minds, that we are able to, to remember the plan that you put in place of sending your Son to earth to die to pay the sacrifice for your creation that chose to sin against you, that you might redeem your people and draw them unto yourself through the sacrifice of your Son. May this be a time of commemoration, of remembrance, and of celebration. And also for those who may be outside of Christ now, a time where you are reaching them and drawing them unto Yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.